theyeshiva.net. The name Pesach has really three names in our tradition. We all call it Pesach. But if you go back to Chumash, it has a very different name. Four times in Chumash. Parshas Mishpatim, Parshas Kisisa, Parshas Emer, and Parshas Re'eh. The name of this holiday is not called Pesach, it's called Chag HaMatzos. Then there's a second name for the holiday that was coined 22 generations later by the Anshei Knesset Agdoila. The Anshei Knesset Agdoila, the men of the Great Assembly, this includes the group of 120 great sages and spiritual leaders who rebuilt Klal Yisrael after the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash in the beginning of the era of the second Beis Hamikdash, including Chagai, Scharia, Malachi, Mordechai, Ezra, Nehemiah, Shimonat Tzadik. We say in the beginning of Pirkei he was from the last ones of the Knesset Sagdoila. They were the ones who instituted the texts of Tfilah, the text of Shemayna Esri, including for the Yamim Toivim. And in the prayer for Pesach, they coined a new phrase. The season of our freedom. The season of our liberation, our emancipation. That's name number two. And then there's the third name, that is the name that's frequently used in Gemara, in the Talmud, in Mishnayis and Gemara, and it became the name that's used by Klal Yisrael, by the Jewish people, the holiday of Pesach, Chag Pesach. Why do we need three names? What's wrong with one name? Why three names for Pesach? Chag HaMatzis in Chumash, Zman Cheruseinu by the Anshei Knesset Sagdoila, and finally Pesach. When we talk about this holiday, I say, did you already get ready for Chag HaMatzis? Do I say, did you get ready for Chag HaMatzis? What are you doing for Chag HaMatzis? Are you all ready for Zman Cheruseinu? Is the family coming to you? Are you going away for Zman Cheruseinu? Are you going away for Chag HaMatzis? Very few people use that term. The term that we use is Pesach. Are you ready for Pesach? Did you finish cleaning for Pesach? Are you going away for Pesach? Who's coming for Pesach? Are you stressed about Pesach? Are you excited about Pesach? That's the name we use. What's the significance of this? You might say, well, it's just three names, but in Torah and Yiddishkeit, everything is precise, everything is meaningful, everything is purposeful. The fact that this Yom Tif doesn't have one name, but three names, is profoundly meaningful. But what is the meaning of it? And also, why in this order? This order is also meaningful. In Teresh HaBiksav and Chumash, the name that Hashem gives this holiday, the first name is Chagamatzis, that's step one. Later in history, the Anshei Knesset HaGdoila, give it another dimension, another flavor. Zman Cheruseinu, the season of our freedom. And then later in Jewish history, the third name emerges, and that's of course the holiday of Pesach. Now in Chumash, you have the name Pesach, but that's only on the carbon Pesach. <laughs> the Passover offering that was brought, Yudalad Nisan, in the afternoon is called Pesach. And those days are also called Pesach, Yudalan and Tesvav Nisan. But as a holiday that defines all the eight days, calling it Pesach, that's only a later development in Jewish history. What's the significance of the three names and in this particular order? Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Bardichev, in his Sefer Kedushas Levi, in Parshas Ve'er or Parshas Boy, he points out the meaning of the first two names. And he says that in a very powerful and loving relationship, this is what he writes, when a husband speaks about his spouse, he loves to extol the virtues of his spouse. What an unbelievable person his wife is. And it's not just words, but it's a real internal feeling where in a good marriage, a special marriage, a husband feels, how lucky am I? How privileged am I? How content and special I feel that Hashem has given me the gift of this person in my life. And conversely, 
The same is the sentiment of the wife towards the husband in such a marriage. So Blavitzik of says, that's why the Torah calls it Chagamatzis. And the Jewish people call it Chagapesach. Because when the husband wants to speak about the marriage, he says, ah, look what a wife I have. It is incredible. Who can have even entertained the idea and possibility of being married to such a spouse? And when she speaks about her husband, she's like, wow, can you imagine what a bliss, what bliss I am in to be married to such a person? So when Hashem speaks about the holiday, He calls it Chag HaMatzas. Look at what the Jewish people do for this holiday. They clean up their house from all chametz, and they dedicate, the holiday, they dedicate their time to bake matzah, and the matzah is, uh, is liberated from every last speck of leaven, of chametz. So He brings out the virtue, the greatness of the Jewish people. And as we say, Kayamar Hashem, they followed me into a desert, into a wilderness without anything. And all they went, there was such a rush. All they can take is, as it says in the Pasuk, the dough on their, uh, on their shoulders and they had to bake it swiftly without allowing the dough to ferment and become leaven and become chametz. Now you're going out with a family, you're going out hundreds of thousands and millions of people. You need preparation, you need time, you need to make sure you have a amount of food. But their faith, their muna was so powerful. They just rushed out, which is why they had matzah and not chametz, as the Pasuk says. And thus, it represents the greatness of the Jewish people. When the Jewish people want to talk about Pesach, what do they call They call it Pesach. Pesach represents what Hashem did. It says the Pasach Hashem, Hashem leaped over the homes of the Jewish people on the night of the Exodus. So Hashem calls it Chag because He wants to extol the virtues of His spouse. And the Jewish people called it Chag Pesach because they want to extol the virtues and the greatness of what the Rebbeinu Shalom did for the Jewish people on this holiday. That's why there's the two names. He does not get into the third name, which is in the middle between these two names, Zman Cheruseinu. So here we're going to develop another angle, another perspective in these three names. We know that Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, when the Jewish people were liberated from Egypt, it's considered really like a birth. The Pasuk in Yecheskel, which we read in the Haggadah, there's a whole chapter in Yecheskel, chapter 16, where he compares Gullus to pregnancy, and the Geula, the redemption, both the past and the future, to the birth of a child. The birth of a child is a whole new beginning, because in exile the Jewish people were enslaved, they were subjugated, and as the Navi Yecheskel says, Hashem came, He extracted a nation from among another nation. Till then the Jewish people were completely slaves, in other words, subordinate, subjugated, surrendered to the abuse and the genocide and the persecution and the savage suffering that the Egyptians, Parah, imposed upon them. And Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim was really the, like extracting, extracting a nation that was embedded, that was concealed, that was downtrodden, that was rejected, that was held down in chains and shackles, literally and configuratively, by their oppressors, and allowing them to emerge as an independent, free nation, a nation that can choose and forge its destiny and its mandate. A new people was born. The Gemara says also in Yevamas that Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim and Matan Torah was like a conversion. Conversion is like a, a, a child is born. It's like a new Mitzias, a new entity. So that was Yitzias Mitzrayim. And it's not just 
because they became a nation. Yes, till Yitzhiyah's Mitzrayim, they were not really a nation. They were a family. They kept together. They were targeted in terms of the fact that they were Jews. Pirate targeted them for persecution. But they didn't have the identity of a nation. They couldn't without freedom, without liberty, without being emancipated and independent. Other people, other, other your oppressors, your masters define who you are and what you are individually and collectively. So Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim is when they're liberated on every level, physically, spiritually, geographically, emotionally, psychologically. So now there is a new entity that's born. There's something called Am Yisrael. There's something called a nation of Yisrael that can begin its journey, that can, that can embark on its, uh, on its voyage, so to speak, both physically, from Mitzrayim to Yisrael, and also spiritually, the destiny of the Jewish people. That's true on one level. But it's not just they're a new entity because they were born. That's true, they were born. They became a people, they became a free people. So they were born. It's also... Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, its culmination was Matan Torah. As the Pasuk says, When you take the Jewish people out of Egypt, You will come to this mountain. In other words, the ultimate culmination of leaving Mitzrayim was Maimed Har Sinai, Matan Torah, which happened seven weeks later. And that's the reason that the only holiday in Judaism that doesn't have a date is Shavuos. Every other holiday has a date. Pesach is the 15th of Nisan. Sukkot is the 15th of Tishrei, Yom Kippur is the 10th of Tishrei, Hanukkah is the 25th of Kislev, Purim is 14th of Adar. Every holiday has a date. Shavuos doesn't have a date. Shavuos, in fact, the Gemara says it could be Hesiv and Vav Siv and Zion Siv. It's the 50th day after you count 49 days from the second day of Pesach. So there were times in the past that Shavuos could be one day in the month or another day of the month or another. Today there's already a fixed calendar. So Shavuos is always on Vav and Zion Sivan, but it's not essentially how the holiday was set up. In the time when Rish Chodesh can fluctuate between one day and another day, Shavuos could be another day in the month because Shavuos doesn't have a fixed day. Shavuos is always relative to Pesach. You count from the second day of Pesach 49 days, the 50th day is always Shavuos. That's why there's always an interesting question about Shavuos. If somebody passes the international date line between Pesach and Shavuos, let's say you fly through the Pacific to Australia, after Pesach, or you fly back. So you either lose a day, or you gain a day. So the question is, when do you do Shavuos? Do you do Shavuos like everybody else? Or, perhaps, your 49 days may not be over yet, <laughs> because you have to count another day, so then your Shavuos would start only a day later. Or, the other way around, you gained a day, so your 50th day is earlier, so your Shavuos would happen a day earlier. It's a very fascinating question in Halacha. And it's all because Shavuos doesn't have a fixed date. Why is Shavuos the only one that doesn't have a fixed date? Because Pesach is not complete till Shavuos. Shavuos was the completion of Pesach. It's not a separate holiday. In Medrash and Shirashirim, it's called Atzeres Shal Pesach. It's the culmination of Pesach. Like Shmini Atzeres is the end of Sukkot. Shavuos is the end of Pesach. Why is Shavuos the end of Pesach? Because it's not just the Jewish people were freed. You could be free, but towards what, what, what type of identity do you have? Who are you? In order to be free, you have to know who you are. Because if not, there's a new form of slavery, and that is I could become a slave to various instincts within myself, so I may be free from my oppressor, but the oppressor inside of me I may not be free of. So Shavuos is really the culmination of Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim because it's what crafted the identity of the Jewish people, and it transformed them not just into a people, but what you would call a Torah nation, an Amat Torah. 
a Torah folk, a nation of Torah at this mountain. So that is the identity of the Jewish people. It's a nation of Torah. Rabbeinu Sa'ad Yagon writes, and he lived in the 8th, in the 10th century, in the 9th century, in uh, Rabbeinu Sa'ad Yagon was one of the Goinim of the time in Babylonia, present-day Iraq, and he writes in his philosophical work, Our nation is not a nation, only do and through the Torah. In other words, the very identity, what connects a Jew from Australia to a Jew from Moscow, to a Jew from Odessa, the Jews who are still in Odessa, to a Jew from South America, to a Jew from Mexico City, to a Jew from New York. What's the connection? For thousands of years, Jews were not always in the same country. So what connects a Jew from one nation to another nation? And the answer is, both historically and spiritually, Yiddishkeit, the Torah and the mitzvahs, this identity, this mandate, turned the Jewish people into a nation. Because in terms of history and in terms of a political identity, the Jewish people, most of our history, weren't in the same land. Americans are Americans because we live in the United States of America. And Australians are Australians because they live on the soil of Australia. But most of our history, unfortunately, we didn't live together in our homeland. And yet, Jews still felt like Jews. We were connected. We're one people. What makes us a people? If you don't have a homeland... <laughs> And you're not united by that homeland. What makes you a people? So Reb Sadiqon gave the answer. If you're going to use the traditional definition of nationhood, you're not going to be able to find the identity of the Jewish people. It's going to fall apart. So the answer is, That's Reb Sadiqon's very, very powerful historical answer in the Middle Ages, when Jews were dispersed all over the world, and today even more than then. So, as the Jewish people are born, they're literally born anew, from a nation of slaves to a people destined to be chosen by Hashem to change the world. As they're born into a new identity, as they emerge into a new identity, literally like a baby emerging from the womb. Now you have a new person. The baby was there before also. The baby was, as the Gemara says, a fetus is considered part of the mother. Later, of course, the fetus, the child still needs the mother. But the child is a person, is a self-contained human being. And sooner or later, we're going to see how self-contained they are in terms of personality and disposition and physiological identity and spiritual identity, psychological identity, and so forth. The Jewish people become a people, a newborn people, an independent people, and also a people that's transformed into a new entity, which is the entity of Torah, both as an individual, every Jew as an individual, and every Jew as part of the collective. This is an Amah Torah, a nation of Torah. The Gemara says that, When you teach somebody Torah, it's like you have given them, you have birthed them. That's why Moshe's students are considered his children. Why? The Pasuk says, because when, you teach somebody Torah, it's like you birth them. You birth them into a new entity because the Jewish people are a very nation of Torah. Now all births, all transformations consist of three stages. Every birth, whether literal or figuratively, involves three phases. And those are the three names of this holiday. The three names are not just... Incidental is three names, why not? Give it three names. 
The three names represent the three phases of every true transformation from one entity into a completely new entity, what would be called a Metzius Chadasha, a Naya Metzius, a new entity, there's three phases. Probably in English, the best way to describe them is self. The first would be surrender. The second would be uh, self-actualization. And the third would be self-transcendence. Or maybe self-abnegation, self-actualization, and self-transcendence. And I think to understand this with Pesach, it would be helpful to give an idea from the world of ideas. When a true teacher, a true master, a true mentor, a true pedagogue wants to inculcate or wants to impart to a real, authentic disciple, student, Talmud, Talmida, child, pupil, a really new idea. Not just repeating, you know, as they say, same old, same old, but really a new idea. You want to impart a new consciousness, what we call today a paradigm shift, a new way of thinking, a new way of looking at something, a real new idea, which is a form of birth. It's a form of birth. We call it, you know, an epiphany. I, I birthed a, a new idea. There's, there's biological birth, which requires, <laughs> I, shouldn't, I don't know if the lecture here about this, which requires a lot of effort and is very painful. Be'etz of tel dibonim, as Hashem tells Chava. But there's so many different types of birth. A birth of a new idea, of a new consciousness, is, is a very serious process. And it's not a simple process. And when the teacher wants to do that for the student, there's going to be three phases. Albert Einstein once made a very profound comment, and I quote, A problem cannot be solved from the same level of thinking in which it was created. You got that? A problem cannot be solved from the same level of thinking in which it was created. And yet, do I have any other way of thinking? Now, I often want to solve a problem. The problem is, to solve a problem, (laughs) I have to get out of the mode which created the problem, or which allows for the problem to continue. I may have not created it, but I'm allowing it to be maintained. And that shift is anything but simple. Because for a person to discover or comprehend a completely new idea, I often have to make a radical departure from my previous way of thinking about things. For me to experience a really new vision, again, I'm not talking about just repeating the same old idea, but to experience a new vision, a new perspective, a new depth, a new level of consciousness, intellectually, viscerally, emotionally, on any level, I need to really be humble. And humility is one of the harder things in the world. Humility doesn't just mean that I don't come across as haughty and arrogant and narcissistic and bloated and inflated or any other word you want to use for an ego that's out of whack. I may behave nicely. I may be a gentleman or a gentlewoman, gentle as gentleman or gentlewoman as two words, gentle, which is where gentleman comes from, of course. But I'm talking about internally. You know, there is external humility. A person is humble, they behave nicely, they behave respectfully, but that doesn't mean that internally I'm really humble. Internal humility could be much, much harder. 
Because internal humility is really saying goodbye to what I'm familiar with in terms of who I am. It's what we spoke before Purim, if you remember, about Ada Layada. Everybody processes their own identity through the tools that they have, which tell them who they are. And for me to embrace a new I that I'm unfamiliar with is very risky. It's, it's very scary. That's what real humility is. It's, it's, a, it's a very serious process for me to really be able to put aside previous conceptions, obliterating a certain part of myself that I'm so familiar with. In fact, there's voices in me that say that's dangerous. Don't do that. What is it going to be replaced with? Which is why you cannot really be humble without deep, deep reassurance, without a deep, deep sense of confidence that this humility is going to lead to real growth, to healthy growth, rather than real obliteration. That's why some people are very scared to be humble. There is a fear to be really humble because if I open myself up on that level, if I empty out my vessel from everything, will it be filled with something meaningful? Or will it be filled with something that's going to hurt me? So maybe it's much safer to keep my vessel full and not empty it for anybody or anything, at least. At least I know what's there and there's no space for anything else. If you want to turn me into what's called in Gemara clay rakon, an, an open womb, so to speak, a vessel, a container that could contain a new vision, a new idea, a new experience, it's going to take a lot of courage from me. Because if not, my old way of thinking is going to interfere with my assimilation, with my integration of a new idea. There's a famous expression in Gemara and Brachas, clay reikon machzik, clay mali ene machzik. An empty vessel can contain, can receive. A full vessel can't receive. They tell a story that there was a student, he was a spiritual seeker, and he traveled the world to come to his master, and he comes to his master, and he sits down, and he says, I'm ready to give everything to learn from you. Teach me. Teach me what I don't know. Teach me about life. Teach me about myself. Teach me about purpose. Teach me about authenticity. Teach me everything. And the teacher says, of course. But before we begin, would you like a cup of tea? He says, of course, I would appreciate a cup of tea. I journeyed very far. So he takes the cup and he fills it up with tea. And it's filled to the top. And the teacher continues to pour from the kettle, he's pouring and pouring and pouring. And at this point, <laughs> the cup is just overflowing and, this, and the floor starts flooding. And he says, my teacher, stop, stop, stop. And he just continues until the whole kettle is empty. And there's nothing to pour anymore. <laughs> he says, what are you doing? He says, well, that's the problem we have. The problem we have is that your cup is very full. Your cup... <laughs> This cup, not just this cup, there's two cups, right? Is very, very full, which is beautiful, which is wonderful. But you're not ready for any new water. You're not ready for it. You're going to have to empty out your cup to be able to receive new water. Because if not, the water I pour is just going to go right over, right over the cup, and it's completely not going to be internalized. You know, sometimes you see a person says, you know, I want to learn. Let's learn something. Teach me something. And, and the person is sincere. But they don't know that they're insincere. Not because they're insincere, but they're simply not capable. So whatever I learn, whatever I hear, I'm just going to 
put into my previous paradigms. I already have my filing. You know when you have filing cabinets? You remember those days? And now you get an invoice or you get a bill and you have to find the right folder, right? About the right theme and the right topic and you put it in the right place and you close the filing cabinet and it's safe. Well, our brain is made up of lots and lots of filing cabinets. In fact, a hundred billion of them. They're called neurons. (laughs) We have a hundred billion filing cabinets more organized than any system that any human being has created. It's God's filing cabinet. But we're the ones who manage it. And we're the ones who format it. And we do it every day of our lives. And we call it neural pathways. And we connect the filing cabinets. So very often I hear something, I find the right filing cabinet, and I put it in. But I'm always putting it in to a pre-existing filing cabinet, to a pre-existing folder, to a pre-existing theme. And that way, nothing is really challenging me. I can't become a new person. I can't develop a new sense of consciousness. Why? I'm just fitting it into the previous Kali that exists, which is already full. My brother told me that somebody once came to ask his advice about something, and it was a very personal matter. My brother said, you know that people have blind spots. You know, when we drive, even if you have a clean and good rearview mirror, there are blind spots that you do not notice. So he says, you know, it's even more so emotionally. We have Blind spots, things we don't see. The Mishnah says, This week's parsha, all leprosies, a Kayan is allowed to examine and see if he's Tameh or Tahir besides his own. So there's a famous interpretation, homiletically, people can see the Negayim, the blemishes, the leprosies everywhere, besides my own. And not because I'm dishonest and not because I'm trying to lie, that's also possible, but simply because I am I. <laughs> A prisoner cannot liberate themselves from prison. If I'm wearing the, the, the cuffs, the chains, I can't liberate myself. So my brother said, you know that people have blind spots. Is it possible that you may also have a blind spot? And he says, of course I know, but I know where my blind spots are. <laughs> I know what my blind spots are. So of course, right? So that's even a worse blind spot because... I'm even aware of my blind spots. I am so sophisticated. I'm aware of my problems. Oh, now we have the real problem. At least if I wasn't aware, somebody made me aware, I can be aware. But if I'm aware of everything, then what am I not? What am I not aware of? (coughs) The big psychiatrist I know in Connecticut, he once told me that he had a patient who came to his first session and the psychiatrist started to speak and he took out his notebook. He's a psychiatrist and a psychotherapist and a psychologist. And this person takes out his pad or his notebook and he starts taking notes. <laughs> so he says, why are you taking notes? He said, I want to retain what you said. He said, no, 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 no. Don't take notes. Just listen. He says, but I'm going to forget. He said, if 1% just goes in organically, it will be better than all the notes that you take. Because the notes that you're taking is, again, you're trying to organize the material into your pre-existing uh, pads into your pre-existing uh, notebooks, into your pre-existing filing cabinets. But can you allow yourself just to be open, to be vulnerable? And this is not an external process. It's a very, very deep internal process. There's a famous metaphor that Heisenberg gave Einstein. It's about physics, but the metaphor is very powerful. He said that there was a fisherman who wanted to ascertain the size of fish in the world. So he lowered a net in the Pacific for a few months and he lifted up the net And he came to the conclusion and he made an announcement that there are no fish in the world smaller than 10 inches. He was the laughing stock of the scientific community. But he really wasn't lying because the holes in the net were 10 inches. 
So there were no fish smaller than 10 inches. So from his perspective, he was very honest and he was intellectually accurate too. He just never thought that the holes in the net were just not capable of acknowledging that there are other fish that are smaller than this. How often does this happen? The way everyone experiences the world through their own net, through their own tools, my intellectual, emotional, visceral tools, my upbringing, my genetic makeup, my cerebral makeup, my life experiences, my neural pathways. And what happens if my net has serious gaps and serious holes in them? They will reach certain conclusions, not because I'm trying to lie, because I'm simply incapable of seeing things significantly in a different way. There are really no fish that are smaller because those are the holes in my net. But very few of us will take the time or have the courage or even sometimes know-how to revisit the net. I come to conclusions, but am I ready to revisit the instruments I'm using in order to define reality? Because the instruments I'm using to define reality will determine the nature of reality that I define. It's clear what I'm saying, right? <laughs> but it's harder to implement. The reason it's harder to implement is not because I don't want I may want to. I simply may not be capable of it. I'm too invested emotionally, and sometimes subconsciously I'm too invested. I can't really hear anything new, and therefore I just go back Back to the same information. I'll reduce whatever you tell me into things I know. It may enhance my filing cabinets, but it's not ready. I'm not ready to create real, real new neural pathways, and therefore I'm not ready for anything new. So the first stage in birthing a new idea, a new child, a new consciousness, a new identity is really profound humility what we call profound bittal, profound self-abnegation, in a very deep way. Uh, some time ago, after one of these classes, somebody came over to speak to me, and uh, she was discussing with me the terrible chutzpah that her daughter is displaying towards her and towards her husband and towards the other children in the family. And she says, you know, I don't know about this generation, but I come from a generation where chutzpah was just not tolerated. And she started to tell me what this girl tells her and tells her father and tells her siblings. And I'm not, not going to tolerate and I don't care what anybody tells me. I have the vision and the values of Torah and chutzpah is not allowed and you cannot live in my house if you have chutzpah. And she really described this with a lot of drama. Now... I, I happen to know this, you know, the family from another angle, from another perspective. And I knew that this girl is suffering very, very severely, emotionally. She's internally broken. So what this mother is calling chutzpah, which it certainly sounds like chutzpah, I understood that very well. From a different perspective, not only is it not chutzpah, it's basically an outcry of, of despair, of, of resignation of life that feels so worthless and meaningless. So I told her, I said, is it maybe possible that it's not chutzpah? Maybe it's just this girl is so emotionally broken. Why should she be broken? I'm a good mother. I'm a good mother and my husband has worked so hard. And then I realized that she will not be able to hear. Huh? She won't. And it's not her fault. She became so defensive 
To tell her that her daughter was emotionally broken meant that she was a horrible person. Now that's a lot. That's a lot. She couldn't even hear. Maybe it's, not, it's really not about you because her daughter, she was so intertwined with the fate of her daughter. And in her mind, she meant so well. She meant so well. And she's like, you know, at some point she just started to cry. What do I want? I want my daughter should be a, a good daughter, a Yiddish amedal. What, what are you saying? And I just don't want her to have chutzpah. We have to all realize these things because we all do it to ourselves in our own way. I become so defensive because I'm trying to protect what I think is noble and holy and good. And, and if I don't, everything is going to be destroyed. And I have to say, I give people who can go beyond this a lot, a lot of credit because it takes a lot of emotional courage to be able to say, you know, I don't have to be defensive. This is not a verdict about me. This is not a verdict even about my child. This is really just tuning in to what is happening and asking myself what God wants for me at this moment. What is my shlichus? What is my opportunity? What is my gift? It's a different way of thinking. But it takes a lot of, lot of humility. And sometimes people don't acquire this humility until they try everything else. Huh? Well, hopefully it's not too late. But uh, sometimes things progress. Progress very dramatically. Now, frankly, the greatest obstacle to humility is not arrogance. Fear. <laughs> the greatest obstacle to humility is fear. Because again, if I empty my vessel, what's going to replace it? You know, who's going to replace it? Will it be any better than the first idea? Will it be any better? That's why you have to know who you're abnegating yourself to. Because really, just to create an open space for any mishagas to fill, that's not good humility. That's humility you should be afraid of. Sometimes when people suffered deep wounds... Their brains are not ready to hear anything new. I'm not going there. I created a coping mechanism of safety, and I'm not ready to open myself up to a new consciousness. It's too dangerous. Remember, coping mechanisms took months or years to develop. My brain has its filing cabinets. It's now safe. I may be miserable, but I'm safe, at least in my own perception. And now you really want to, you really want to uh, challenge that. You want to shake things up. You want me to empty out my filing cabinets? We call it B'dikas Chametz. I'm not ready for that. This can, this can be so overwhelming and so scary. And that's why a person really, really needs to be able to come from a place of, of deep courage and strength and compassion to know that through this type of humility, real growth will happen, real transformation will happen. I have a friend and he shared with me, it was something very moving. He had a very, very difficult marriage for many years. And he didn't know why. He's a good person and she's a good person and they tried hard. And they're really wonderful people. And he was just sharing with me how difficult his marriage was for many, many years. And he said one day he was talking to a marriage therapist who he trusted. He's a very, very good person. And in middle... The therapist looks at him and says, you must be so angry. You must be so angry at your spouse, at your wife. You must be burning up with so much anger and fury. In Hebrew, there's an expression, asimon. He had an epiphany. The epiphany was that it was true. 
but he could never tell himself that he was angry because he's a gentleman. And he, he couldn't acknowledge that such a base and negative and toxic emotion would be eating up at his marriage, would be eating up at his marriage and eating up at his heart and eating up at his identity. He simply couldn't acknowledge it. So it was there. It was driving his reactions to his wife. It was driving his conversations. It was driving his behavior. It was driving his relationships. But he couldn't have any control over it because he did not allow himself to have awareness of it because it was too strange, too base. It's all this, we speak so much against anger. Could it really be that that's what I'm suffering from? It can't be. I'm intellectual. I'm cerebral. I'm a gentleman. I'm a thought-out person. I'm a nice guy. Ask my friends. Nobody thinks I'm angry. And he told me, he turned to this person and says, how do you know? It's almost like, you know, you hit the spot. He never knew. How did you know? The therapist says, I didn't know. But you understand everything I explained to you. You're trying hard and it's not working. There must be terrible repressed anger that is playing itself out and is jeopardizing everything we're trying to do. And he told me that comment changed his life. Because he can acknowledge it. In other words, you could speak to somebody for three years and tell them wonderful and they try to understand. They don't understand a word you're saying. Intellectually, they understand it. But in a, in a visceral way, they don't get it. They can't get it. It's not their fault. I cannot absorb this. I cannot allow it to impact me. There is too much fear. My coping mechanism has canceled out any of these ideas. I have to live according to this modality. And it could be completely subconscious. This person's anger is what justified his, his survival. It was justified his behavior. It was absolutely a coping mechanism. How many people have such types of coping mechanisms? You don't have to raise your hands here in this room. But just think about it. And what if I have it and I don't even know I have it? But I see the impact. I see how things are contaminated in my relationship. I, think, I see how things are toxic. I see how people who love me are hurting me, at least in my imagination. People I love and I'm hurting them, at least the way they're experiencing it. What's going on? What's the trap I'm in? This is the first step of all growth. And without this complete humility, this complete surrender, this complete self-abnegation, which is dangerous from a certain perspective... There is never any real new birth, any new idea, any, any real transformation. Now, <laughs> I do have to say that this is really all in Gemara. The Gemara says that when the students, it's a Gemara in Shabbos and Ibsachim, when the students sit in front of a Rebbe, in front of their teacher, the opening is Yosef B'Shmaitza, Yosef B'Eimasa. They sit with Ema, with awe, with reverence. The lips drip with a sense of deep, deep awe and reverence. What is this awe and reverence about? Awe and reverence is not afraid that you're going to punish me. Awe and reverence means when somebody is awed by something, my ego is out of the way. When there's reverences, I'm not trying to give opinions. You know why children remember things so well and adults don't? You ever have your child remind you something you said to them when they were four years old, like 20 years later? And you're like, I don't remember what happened yesterday, right? The reason is because children actually listen. <laughs> adults have a very hard time listening. 
Even when you're listening to something, are you listening to it or are you having opinions about it? So sometimes I'll be sitting at a lecture and I'm not listening. I'm saying, wow, this is good. This I heard already. This is boring. I'm going to use this. I'm not listening. I'm having opinions about it. In other words, I'm introducing, I'm asserting my own (laughs) ideas into what's being said. Children are like wet sponges that absorb everything. And that's why they remember it. Because the tool, the prerequisite for memory is to empty my mind and just become a complete, complete, humble, humble vessel without any, any opinions. That's very difficult to do. The older we get, the more established we get, why would I even want to go there? Especially if my life is working, quote unquote. If my life is not working, I'm forced to go there. But if my life is working, it becomes even harder. And yet that's the real prerequisite for everything. However, the Gemara also says that Rabbah, Shabbos, Taflamet, Psachim, Kofi, Rabbah, before he would begin the Shir, he would say a joke. Everybody would laugh. And then they would sit with awe and he would begin the Shir. Because before the humility has to always come trust. If I have trauma, I can't be humble. I can't listen to something new. It's too dangerous. First, I have trust. And that's what the anecdote represented. It put the teacher in a position. What does humor do? Why is humor such an effective method in communication? You know why? (laughs) Not just because people like to laugh. It's because psychologically, it shows the student that the teacher and the student are connected. We can laugh at the same jokes. We can cry at the same experiences. There's a sense of humanness that's shared. There's a sense of camaraderie. There's a sense of kinship. Before I can really humble myself, self-abnegation, empty out my cup of tea to be open, I have to trust that you're going to put a da- not, you're not going to put a dagger there. If this is my coping mechanism, how can I let go of it? What happens if I let go of it and what happens now? I'm like, my life is so threatened. So there always has to be that sense of kinship, trust, before the communication. That's why, but after, it's all about humility. After that, I have to be able to open myself up completely. Without trust, I'm just not going to do it because it's too scary, it's too dangerous. That's what the Gemara says in Saita. That once the process starts, the left rejects and the right embraces. And the Gemara says it even about our children. With a child, the Rambam says, you have to motivate them positively. That's true. You need the trust. You need the kinship. But then when I want to teach something, really new, the first thing is, there's the left arm which rejects, not rejects the person, rejects the need to be able to block any new information. Rejects the need for me to be able to control my information. The ability to really, really be able to surrender. That's an art. And it's a great gift. And it's a gift when somebody can do this continuously in their life. So the birthing of one idea can yet lead to the birthing of yet another idea. The Gemara says about Baba I think Pehei or Pehvav, Pehdalat, Pehei, that Reb was making Aliyah from Bavel to Eretz Yisrael. And before he did, he fasted 40 fasts, and according to one version, 100, in order to forget Talmud Bavli, so that he could learn Talmud Yerushalmi, which is very strange. The idea is that he understood that the two ways of learning Gemara were different ways. And as long as he was in the old paradigm, he wouldn't be able to absorb the new one. 
It's not just different books and texts. Nobody says, I'm going to forget the old books, I could learn the new book. On the contrary, by remembering the old, you'll have a better understanding of the new. But that's only if I'm learning text. If it's a new paradigm, if it's a new way of looking at the world, if it's a new consciousness, I actually have to forget. So imagine Reb Zayda fasts a hundred fasts to forget Talmud Bavli so that he should be able to absorb Talmud, absorb Talmud Yerushalmi. But this teaches you about what it means to go through that metamorphosis intellectually, emotionally, spiritually. It's like the seed that decomposes in the earth in order to morph from a seed into a tree. You could have a seed, it's a wonderful to have a seed, but it's never going to transform into a splendid tree or bush or flower, shrub or plant, whatever it is, legume, vegetable, without first decomposing in the ground. Decomposition is all about humility. That's the first name of Pesach, as we will see. Chag Hamatzos. But that's not where education stops. I'm humble, I'm empty, I'm just like this container, this empathetic witness. Rechem, which is the Hebrew word for the womb that contains the child. That absolute ability to be able to be awed, to, be, to experience that reverence, not the need to interfere with my static, with my ego, with my blind spots, to be able to really open up my net or close the holes in my net and be truly open to what the other person is saying which in relationships is what real listening is about. You know, real listening, as you know, is not easy. (laughs) Real listening means I listen to what you are saying. I don't listen to what your words are doing to me, which is how many of us listen. I'm not listening to you. I'm listening to what's happening. I'm like, how do you say that it's not true what you just said? It's not true. I wasn't listening to you. I was listening to me, which is good. But listening to you is a whole different process. And it's, it's hard because my triggers take over and I have to argue and I have to convince you and I have to prove you wrong. This is, this is like, it's, it's real emotional work. This is, inner, this is real avoid. It's real emotional work to be able to go into that space. We now come to the next stage. The next stage is, if all a person has is absolute humility, in a way, it really means that at the moment I don't exist. I'm just completely open to something new. But I can't, it can't remain there. I have to be able now to approach it with my identity. I have to be able to absorb it within my vessel, within my keli. Yes, I have to empty my cup, my cup and my cups that the tea should come in. But if my cup is broken, if there's a hole in my cup, what's going to happen with the new tea? The new tea is just going to pour out. So yes, I have to empty my cup, but my cup also has to be a cup. It has to be a clay shalom. It has to be a complete vessel. If somebody perforates it, it's not holding on to any beverage, any liquid. So if the entire paradigm of a person is, I know nothing. I just want to learn. I'm humble. It's the prerequisite. It's the baseline. It's the foundation. It's that awe. It's that bittle. It's that self-abnegation. But one needs to now come to the second stage, and that is, I want to be able to absorb it. For this, I need to use my tools. <laughs> I have my mind and my heart and my body and my nervous system and my brain to be able to absorb it. And I have to use those tools. I have to use my net. True, I had to humble myself. I had to empty it out to be able to absorb something new. But if it's just, I am not here, which is stage one, I am not here. Okay. <laughs> but now the I needs to 
resurface itself and absorb the idea, absorb the consciousness. Really bring it into my vessel, bring it into my cup, bring it into my heart, bring it into my body. It's the humility that allows me to hear something that transcended me, to hear something that I didn't know, to open myself up to a new consciousness. But now is the process of internalizing it, of making it part of me. That's stage two in the process. So this is where the keli is reikon. The keli is empty. But the keli also has to be a keli shalem, a, a, a complete vessel, a whole vessel. If you have a nekev, if a person, for example, starts feeling, I'm worthless, I didn't know anything, I'm so stupid, where does that leave me? <laughs> I won't be able to grow. It just leaves me becoming a humble shmata, a doormat, a valueless person. So there's no growth. So it's great. You have this great humility. I acknowledge my ignorance. So I acknowledge my ignorance. I know nothing. What that often leads to is terrible guilt, terrible shame, terrible self-loathing, terrible self-hatred, self-abnegation that undermines me. It doesn't make me conducive to growth. It's like if that seed decomposes in the earth and there's nothing else, then it's just decomposition. So you become earth, ashtikal erd. We say in davening at the end of davening, v'nafshi ka'afar lakaltiya, psach libi b'sayrasecha. My soul should be like afar, like earth, like dust for everybody. Open my heart in your Torah, b'mitzvah secha Torah of nafshi. So Taisvis writes in Brachas, Yudzayin, v'nafshi ka'afar lakaltiya. Earth is something that's indestructible. And it's something that always promotes growth. So v'nafshi ka'afar lakaltiya doesn't mean I become offer, just step, step, step on me, that's it, I'm offer. No, it's the humility that then allows me to grow, to turn into a tree. Psach libi b'sayrasecha. If the v'nafshi ka'afar is not leading to the psach libi b'sayrasecha, my heart is becoming more open to your Torah. Then this seed, it's like somebody buries a seed and then they just disregard it or they destroy it. You need the rain, the water, and the soil, and the photosynthesis, the sunlight. In order to take this seed and give it the nutrients that now really allow it to grow, to metamorphosize itself, to transform itself. So I need to integrate the new truth into my system. Into my system. To just break a system that's not going to lead you anywhere. Yes, humility, again, it's always the baseline. Because if not, there's no growth, there's no new consciousness. But now I need to learn how to grow into this, how to change my outlook, how to develop myself, how to challenge my behaviors, my habits. I need to believe not only that I was wrong, I also have to believe that I can get it right. <laughs> it's, hard to be- it's hard to achieve this step, to really think that maybe my perception was very narrow. That's, that's a big, that's a big, that's very courageous. To be able to that, for that mother to graduate the conception of chutzpah, 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 I'm not going to tolerate it, to the perception of what does this girl really, really need? It takes a lot. It takes a lot of courage. And just in parentheses, I know you understand this because you hear me enough, but this is not condoning or saying that chutzpah is a beautiful and wonderful thing. It's just trying to identify what is going on and not just see words as hollow, but seeing them as symptoms of what's happening in a person's soul. That's, of course, my point. 
and understanding the difference between chutzpah that's coming from deliberate display of arrogance to chutzpah that's coming from an outcry of real despair and resignation, never mind depression or mood disorder and help, and, 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 and outcry for help. So, yes, I need to believe that my perceptions have to be challenged, but now I have to be able to embrace it. If I remain humble and attentive, I can grow into this. I can develop new neural pathways. My net can close up the gaps. The holes can become smaller. I can pick up the other fish. I can identify the blind spots. And therefore, the blind spots don't have to control me. I could see what's going on in my brain. I can observe what's going on in my nervous system. And therefore, they don't have to control me. So step one, absolute humility. Surrender of my ego on every level, including my fear. Including surrender of the fear to believe that I have fear. Including surrender of the idea that I have to believe that there may be a new idea that I don't know about. I have to surrender that. That's like I know nothing. I'm an empty vessel. It's like a complete bittle. There's a self-nullification there, but which is a very healthy one. It's a very, very good one. I'm like a blank, what do they call it? A blank slate, right? Like a blank slate. In the Pirkei it's called Nayar uh, Chadash, uh, you know, new, new fresh parchment. It says in Pirkei in Perik Dalet, Elisha ben Avuya says, if you teach a child, it's Dioik Suval Nayar Chadash. Ink written on fresh paper. If you teach an older person, it's It's like a paper, you know, it's been erased already many times, and you write again and again and again, it's different. That's what it says in Perkeyavis. The obvious question is, first of all, what's the Chiddush? Everybody knows children are so fertile, you know, you could teach them languages, you could teach them so many things because they're young and impressionable, like wet sponges. And the older you get, it's harder to learn new languages. You can't teach an old, whatever, new tricks. So that's, that's how it is. I mean, you really need the Pirkei for this. And also, why would, why, would, why would the Tana want to denigrate somebody who's already older? You know, there are Jews who didn't have an opportunity to learn when they were young. Rabbi Akiva was 40 and he didn't know anything. There are people in our generation, they're 30 and 40 and 50 and they discover things. Like, why tell them, oh, it's just era- it's an erased piece of paper. It's been written and rewritten and rewritten. You could say, it's so important to teach little children. Bring out the positive. But it's almost like denigrating if you're old, you know, fine, an altar, whatever. A, you know, you're over the hill, you're not really going to absorb it. Like, why would the Pirkei want to do that? So There's a beautiful interpretation that the Lubavitcher Rebbe once shared on this. And he said very, something very powerful. It's not talking about biological years. It's talking about an attitude. I could be 60 years old and learn like a child. And I could be a youngster and learn like an old person. It's an attitude. Do I approach Torah? with a nayar chadash, with a new piece of paper, fresh, blank slate, or no, I approach it with a nayar machuk. I already have a lot of information here. I'll erase it a little bit so you could write new things, but I don't have that freshness, that openness. That's what the Prikiyavas is trying to teach. Trying to teach the real way of observing Torah. The real way of not just learning an idea, but transforming yourself. Becoming a person that embodies the true values of what Torah is in a very deep, internalized and eternal way, I have to become that child. No matter my age, I have to be that nayar chadash to open myself up, that gutted landscape. It's like building a house. You ever tried building a new house, 
without gutting. You know, people do it because it's cheaper. But what happens? <laughs> all the alta problems, all the old problems, right? It's cheaper, it's easier, but it's the short, long way. It's not the long, short way. Sometimes I have to gut everything. I need a beer canvas to be able to create a beautiful piece of art. But if I'm already older, I don't have a beer canvas. My brain already has its filing cabinets. That's why it's the step two, step one. Step two, I engage my intellectual faculties to absorb and digest the new idea. I can't throw out the canvas. I can't turn the canvas into something that doesn't exist. On the contrary, I want to get out of my confinements and believe that I have potential to absorb this new information, this new consciousness, which brings one to step three. And step three is the actual full-fledged transformation. The Gemara says in Avodah Zarah, Ad arbayin shnin rabbi. Till 40 years, a person doesn't really master and internalize the true wisdom of their Rebbe. Because Moshe Rabbeinu told the Jewish people after 40 years, Hashem has not given you a heart to know, eyes to see, and ears to hear until this day. 40 years in Parshas Kisavai. So the Gemara says in Avodah Zarah, in the beginning, page 5, that it takes sometimes 40 years to be able to really understand what you learned 40 years ago. Which is an incredible insight. I could sit by my Rebbe 40 years ago and hear things. And I understood them, or I think I did. I grasped them. I appreciated them. I internalized them based on my tools. But sometimes the cholent has to cook for 40 years. I don't mean the physical cholent. That shouldn't cook for 40 years. The wine, you know, the wine needs to age. You take it out before 40 years, it's just it's lacking that element. 40 years of something simmering on the, on the, on the stove. You know, 40 years that you're, uh, what's the word, uh, 40 years of, uh, of being submerged in the waters of wisdom and going deeper and peeling off yet another layer of the onion, yet another layer of the onion. And then 40 years later, ah, now the teacher really, really got to the core. He really got to the emes. He really, he really, really mastered the, the, the real profound idea here. Why? Why can't I learn it the first day? I was a good student. And the answer is... Because transformation is a process. And these are the three phases of the process. And in phase three, the student really not only absorbs the idea of the teacher, but he or she becomes a form of a teacher themselves. There's an expression, It's not just I absorb the information, but my very identity becomes new. It's like there's a, there's, there's a new birth, there's a real a recreation. It's almost like the person was recreated in a completely new fashion. In physics, when you put pressure on something, so pressure, 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 it breaks, bricks. On an atomic level, there's a certain form of pressure where actually the atomic structure can change. <laughs> the atomic structure actually changes. There's like a whole new metzius. You think pressure, pressure will break it, break it, and then on an atomic level... There's a type of pressure where it literally, you become a new metzius, a new reality. There's, there's, there's a new identity. So it's where the student grows in to become like a replica, a continuum of the teacher himself or herself. It's a leader that doesn't only create students or followers, but a leader that creates other leaders. They themselves 
take responsibility. You become that person. You become an embodiment of that consciousness, an embodiment of that vision. The person really becomes a completely transformed human being. So as I say goodbye to the old and I emerge into the new, slowly there's a transformation where the person becomes a new metzius, a new person, somebody who, who operates, thinks, functions, and lives in a different mode, from a different vantage point, from a much deeper, more expansive, infinite perspective. We always talk about the fact that the person could actually become an ambassador. I see myself as an ambassador of the Rebbeinu Shalom in this world. I'm not anymore a cup where things get stuck, but I become a channel. <laughs> we once spoke about the difference between a keli, a vessel, and a channel, a sea line. In a vessel, a vessel is always contained. I may have seven ounces, I may have nine ounces, I may have 16 ounces, I may have a gallon, I may have a gansa mikveh, 40 sa'ah, but it's still contained. A channel doesn't have a limit because it's a channel. Hashem is infinite. When I become a channel for Hashem, there's no container, there's no cup anymore. I'm a channel. As long as the channel doesn't get plugged, as long as the sea line doesn't get plugged. And it's interesting, in halacha, a clay cheres, an earthenware vessel, is susceptible to tumah. A sea line, a, a, a pipe, is not susceptible to tumah. Why? Even though it contains water, because it's not made to contain, it's made to transmit. A person is made from earth. Mashal kecheres, we say in Rosh Hashanah. Adam yisoydeh may offer, v'sayfel offer. Hashem made Adam, offer min hadama. We are earthenware vessels. When an earthenware vessel is a cup, it's a keli, it can become tame. When it's a channel, it can't become tame because I'm a channel for infinity. I'm an ambassador of Hashem. So I'm an ambassador of infinite love, infinite light, infinite wisdom, infinite healing, infinite authenticity. But that's a transformation that happens in a person going from one stage to another stage to a third stage. So stage number one is saying goodbye, humility. Stage number two is Humility doesn't mean I don't exist, I'm a shmata, just get rid of me, I'm, I'm garbage. <laughs> That's not going to go anywhere. It's bringing my reality into this new idea, appreciating it, integrating it, and then allowing myself to really become one with it, internalizing it, to the point that I can become redefined as a person. So my very identity now becomes a channel, and that growth is infinite, because infinity doesn't stop growing. So it's not like, oh, I'm a channel. Tomorrow I can yet be a deeper channel. And yet a deeper channel. That's what ain't safe is. That's what real infinity is. So now we understand beautifully the three names of the holiday of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, of liberation. The Yom Tif when the Jewish people emerged into a new entity as individuals and as a collective. They were born, literally born. Born as a people. And born as a new Metzius, as a nation of Hashem, a nation of Torah. So we have three names. And the three names evolve in a process. The first name, Chagamatzis. The second name, Zman Cheresenu. And the third name, Pesach. Because these three names really capture what the Yom Tev Pesach, and here again I used one name because that's the name we use, what this holiday really represents in Jewish history. The Jewish people went through these three phases. Every year we can go through these three phases. And historically, these are the three phases 
that represent all real growth, all real liberation, all real birth, all real transformation. Matzah, of course, as is explained in many Svarim, represents egolessness. Because matzah is the unleavened bread, it symbolizes physically that bittel, that humility, that self-abnegation. And that's why the first thing the Jews had to do were, in order to become a free people, it's not easy to become a free people. Remember, slavery exists on many levels, and once it's a coping mechanism, I don't want to leave. We have in Parshish Mishpatim the concept of a slave who says, I don't want to go. It's not easy to be free. I grew up in a particular neighborhood. There was a particular guy. He would walk around. He would break cars of the windows. And they would take him to prison. And he would come out. And he said, I don't have nowhere to stay. And I don't have anybody to feed me. So he would break another window so he can go back to prison. <laughs> this was for him. It's coping mechanism. Now, I assume most of us don't have exactly that type of craving or inclination. But I may have much more sophisticated prisons. More sophisticated prisons that keep me safe. The bottom line is, the common denominator is, I'm shackled. I'm isolated. I'm in solitary confinement. For some people, it's anger. Anger is their coping mechanism. I promise you, I see it all the time. So they don't know what it is not to get angry. Because if I get angry at you, it means I'm the good person. You're the bad person. I could feel righteous and I could say... God really ruined my life with this person in my life. And that's it, shine. Wonderful, I don't have to face my own trauma. Another person, their coping mechanism is depression, isolation. Now, it, it doesn't say it's a coping mechanism. It says it's reality. Of course I'm angry. How can I not be angry at such a horrible person? <laughs> I don't realize that it's my own coping mechanism to be able to feel like I'm a good person, I'm safe, I'm fine, and I could continue in my gullus. So therefore, the first step is matzah. Matzah is flat. Matzah is very humble. I have to abnegate my previous self-definition. That takes a lot of humility. I have to surrender completely. Because if I don't become a flat matzah, if I'm not ready to become deflated, if I'm not ready to become egoless, and sometimes people call matzah tasteless, relative to other forms of... uh, of food, matzah is sometimes called, it's called lechem oini, it's the bread of poverty. There's a tastelessness to it. I know when you're eating the matzah, everybody says, this year the matzah is delicious. But still at your daughter's wedding, you don't serve matzah as the main dish. There's a reason for it. Why? Because that's exactly what matzah is. Humility is not supposed to be tasteful. It's not about, oh, I really enjoy this concept. That's not humility. That's me enjoying it. That's me having an opinion. Real humility is, it's not about my enjoyment. On the contrary, if I'm enjoying it too much, it's probably not a new idea. If it's disturbing me, if it's challenging me, if you don't agree with me, oh, I said something. (laughs) If it's sitting so well inside of me, if it resonates so comfortably, it fits my comfort zones. If it's too tasteful, I don't know if it's matzah. Lechem oini is the bread of poverty. There's a sense of poverty. There's a sense of yearning, of pining. I don't have it. I can't control it. It's something that's shocking me. Yes, it's startling me. It's overwhelming me. That's not a bad thing, even though we're not used to it. It's the ultimate beginning of, of, of growth. And let's face it, some of us will fight till our last breath to hold on to our insecurities, to our fears, to our anger, to our egos, to our fakeness, to our superficiality, to our vanity. I don't want to let it go because I will need to justify my dysfunction, my narcissism, my addictions, my bad behaviors. Consciously and more often subconsciously. Why subconsciously? Because I'm trying to be a good person. 
and I don't realize how I'm justifying it all. So the first step is Chag Hamatzis. That's the Rebbein Shalalim's name for this Yom Tif. The first step of Geula is Matzah. Now we go to the second step, and the second step is Zman Cheiruseinu. Zman Cheiruseinu means the time of my liberty, the time of my emancipation. Suddenly I discovered this is the ultimate freedom. The humility is not making me now a slave to somebody new. I have now a new paray in my life. This is the ultimate form of self-actualization. And that's humility, that's good humility. It's not dangerous humility. It's the seed that turns into a tree. It's the seed that's celebrating the fact that it can decompose so it can become a tree. That's step, step two. The ability for a person to realize, wow, there's so much growth available. My marriage can be so much happier and more peaceful. My relationship with my children could be extraordinary. My relationship with myself, my relationship with my family, my relationship with my parents, with my siblings, my relationship with Hashem, my relationship with anybody and anything can be so much more broad, so much more expansive. I don't have to be a prison to my own blind spots, a prison to my own biases, a prison to my own net. Zman cheiruseinu. Suddenly I become free. My true eye can be emancipated because the true eye of a person is not a slaved eye. It's not a depressed eye. It's not an eye that has to cope. It's an eye that's full of potential and full of creativity and full of love and full of holiness and full of godliness and full of joy. Surrender doesn't destroy me. It's all about setting me free. And that's why there's a surrender that's dangerous and there's a surrender that's fulfilling. A surrender that's dangerous is a surrender where somebody indeed can manipulate me and exploit me. And that's why people are so afraid of surrender. And for good reason. Especially if I've been used and manipulated before. But in a real surrender, a surrender that allows me ultimately to go out of my blind spots and touch the infinite, this is the ultimate form of emancipation, of zman cheiruseinu, of fulfillment. So imagine... When a person could reach a space where I'm not governed anymore by my insanity, by my addictions, by my wounds, by my traumas, by my, by my fears, by my insecurities, or any type of shackles. They don't have to govern my life, even if they exist. I can become aware of them and then choose a different response. I could respond rather than react. I can actually begin to taste freedom. And that's the second idea of what happens, which is fulfilled by Har Sinai. And that's why the Gemara said, the Mishnah says again in Prekayavas, which means the only person who's really free is somebody who's engaged in the learning of Torah. Now you might say, you know, in Yiddish, when you say somebody is fry, what does it mean? <laughs> fry means free in Yiddish. And what does it mean? Somebody. Who, neg- who abandons Torah. Fry means, I abandon Torah, and I'm free. But in Pirkei it says the opposite. Somebody once asked me, he said, really, that's freedom? There's 630 mitzvahs to Torah. Every day there's obligations, and there's limitations. That's not free. Free means you're free. You have no obligations. Nothing, nobody imposes anything upon you. You're a really emancipated person. Torah Begins with Kabbalah's oil, Malchu Shemaim. Kabbalah's oil means acceptance of a yoke. In Yiddish, a yoke is a yoke. <laughs> it sounds even better than a yoke. A yoke. And a yoke is heavy. <laughs> you know when they use a yoke? They use on a yoke on an ox to plow. 
There's a yoke. That's called freedom, having a yoke on me, having a washing machine on one shoulder and a washing machine on another shoulder. What's the yoke? But the truth is that a person really needs to understand fundamentally what Chazal are saying when they say, Imagine a fish would say, I want to be free. So you tell the fish, what do you want? The fish says, I want to tour the world. Do me a favor, take me out of the water and allow me to tour the world. Or imagine a violin says, I want to be free. So you ask the violin, how? The violin says, do me a favor, untie all the cords, untie all the strings so they can soar freely because I want to really be free. Or imagine a leaf on a tree says, please allow me to be free. Cut me off the tree so I can fly away in freedom. I can roam the atmosphere of our planet freely. Or imagine a human limb that says, do me a favor, I want to be free. I don't want to be confined and limited and have the yoke of this brain controlling me. Why don't you sever me from the dictatorship of the brain running the organism so I can be free at last, free at last. We all laugh, right? Why? The leaf is going to die, the limb is going to die, and the rest of the body will suffer. The fish is going to die. Free Torah and mitzvahs for a Jew means living a life that is consistent with my truest I. It's the ultimate self-actualization. Imagine somebody who suffers from serious depression, but they have an Eitzah. If they exercise every morning for an hour and a half... <laughs> even if you don't suffer from depression. But this person really suffers from acute depression, and when they exercise for an hour and a half, I know such people, they exercise for an hour and a half, it really changes their day. They're upbeat, they're positive, they're optimistic, you all know these people. And each of us, even those of us that don't suffer from acute depression, know how true this is with various things that we can do for ourselves. Now this person says, no, I need to be free. Don't tell me what to do. I'm not exercising. <laughs> and their day is miserable. They're angry at themselves, they're angry at their kids, they're angry at their spouse, they're angry at their job, they're angry at the world. Or you say, you know, why don't you create a schedule for yourself? Every day do this for an hour and a half. And you will be a free person. You will be a free person because you will be able to be truly you. You'll be able to live out your dreams, your potentials, you'll know who you are, you'll feel your happiness, your love, your, 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 your inner space. Ein lecha ben for a Jew. Torah mitzvah is not a yoke that destroys me, that represses me. When you really appreciate what Torah and mitzvahs are, whatever it is, it's really, if you understand your soul, if you understand your body, you know that this is a path, it's a life to bring out the best in a person so that you could live the fullest life, the most actualized life. And if indeed a person feels that Torah and mitzvahs is repressing them, it's destroying their marriage, destroying their home, it's destroying their attitude, we have to ask, what net are we using to define Torah? which exists very often. Sometimes people, their interpretation is skewed and it's misconstrued, which is very tragic. That's why the second name is Man Cheruseinu. I had a student once who came to yeshiva. I was teaching in a yeshiva in Brooklyn. And there was a student who came. He was a top student in NYU, New York University. And he decided to come learn Torah. And uh, he was valedictorian. He was a very, very, very smart uh, Smart young man today, he heads a yeshiva, he's a Rosh Hashiva. So I once asked him, I said, his name is Emmanuel, Emmanuel. 
I said, what uh, motivated you to leave behind, you know, the, he, was, he graduated top, high, top grades in high school, valedictorian, and got scholarship, full scholarship into NYU University, becoming a psychologist, comes from a conservative Jewish family, conservative as in conservative versus orthodox. I said, what, Oizgefeld, why did he come here? And his parents were not pro it, at least in the beginning. So he told me that when he was four years old, his mother asked him, what do you want for a birthday? He said, I want a goldfish. So she bought him a tank with a goldfish and put it in the dining room. And he told me I would watch this goldfish all day when I came home from school. And I always found it to be so bored and depressed. It would stay in one place for hours. And then like after six hours, it would swim to the other side and remain in a depression there for 12 hours. And I felt so bad and I decided that the goldfish needs a friend. He told this to me. So he says, I put my hands into the water. I opened the tank. I put my hand in. I took out the goldfish. And sure enough, the goldfish started to jump up and down with so much excitement. And I realized, wow, the fish is so excited to have a friend, to have a comrade. And I put it down on the ground to go tell my mother how brilliant I am. And he said, I put it down on the ground and it's flapping up and down. So splink, mama, shakafas, it's dancing. And I go to the kitchen. I say, mommy, you have to see how excited the goldfish is to have a friend. She says, what happened? I took it out and it's jumping all over the place. She said, oh, no. And she took me back into the dining room as the goldfish gave one more sprung, one more leap. And then it was Yisgadal. It was dead. It was done. And he looked at me and he said, and then I learned one of the important lessons of my life. You could sometimes look at two people and one person is jumping all over the place. Every night they're somewhere else. (laughs) Every day they're somewhere else. Their life is always changing. They're traveling. They're running here and they're running there geographically, emotionally, psychologically. You look at another person. They're like in the same spot in the water (laughs) for days, maybe for years. And you assume one person is bored, numb, lifeless, depressed. The other person is so vibrant and happy. But really, in his words... One of them is jumping all over the place because he's busy dying. And the other person could be in one place because they're busy living. And he says, that's why I came here to yeshiva. (laughs) It was such a profound observation. This happened many years ago, two decades ago. And I still remember when he told me those words. He says, that's why I'm here. That fish was not depressed. (laughs) That fish was fully aligned with its own source of water. Rabbi Akiva says in Brachis, Amachal of a Jew is like a fish and Torah is like water. Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel holds that in a mikveh, fish are not a chatzitza. The halach is not like him, but the idea is fascinating because fish are so completely connected to water, they are like the water. And talking Gemarizvachim, there's about a certain halacha, they paskin like Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel, but it's another concept. This is the idea of Zmanchei Ruseinu, that when the Jew enters into the new Metzius of Torah, the divine calling for my life, it's like the fish, the water and me become one to the point it's not a chatzitza. This is my essence. And there's nothing as liberating as living a life that expresses your essence. And there's nothing as enslaving, as torturous as living a life that's alien to my essence. I would say that one of the hardest things in the world is trying to be who I'm not. <laughs> Isn't that very hard? 
Probably one of the hardest things in life. It requires so much mental space, so much mental energy. It takes up so much of my, of my life, of my energy, trying to convince myself that I am somebody else, especially if I have to do it subconsciously. Behaving in a way that allows me to make believe that I am somebody else. It's very difficult. The Gemara says that Avoidas Perech in Egypt, what made Avoidas, what's called Perech, Perech means uh, crushing labor, that Para used to give women's work to men and men's work to women. So the Mepharshim say, one second, but one of them work harder than the other one. You'll decide who. So the other gender should have been happy. Wow, I get your job, it's so much easier. The answer is, easy and hard is not about how hard I'm working. It's about if the work is expressing who I really am. If the work is not expressing who I really am, you could put me on a couch and say, do nothing. You're a free person. But it's the most depressing thing for me. Trying to behave like the person I'm not. Trying to be the person I'm not. Trying to fit into another system that's not really me. Zman Cheruseinu means to live a life in which I'm fully aligned with me. It brings out the best in me. You'll take away a piano for Mozart and say you're free not to play piano anymore. We'll give you all the money you need. You can also take a person and put him in a corral. What is it called where they put horses? Uh, a corral? And you have all the food in the world. I have all the hay or whatever I call hay. And I just stay there for the horse. It's Gan Eden. <laughs> it's paradise. And for the person, it could be the worst fate in the world. Why? My life is easier. Avedas Perech is when I'm forced, sometimes by myself or by social pressure or by my addictions or by my instincts or by my pain, to be somebody I'm not. So therefore, Zman Cheruseinu is the second stage where the humility, the bittel, allows me to integrate it and realize this is who I am, this is my Metzias. This is the best, this is the best. Which then brings a person to the third stage. And that's Pesach. So you go from Chag HaMatzos to Zman Cheruseinu, where I experience this as my liberty, to Pesach. What does Pesach mean? Pesach means to leap over. Ibishpringen, Upasach Hashem. Hashem jumped over, He leaped over. Rashi says the whole avoid of Pesach, everything should be done derech. Kfitza v'dilug. Like jumping over, leaping. Oopsie. Exactly. <laughs> and they even stayed intact. Wow. I'm glad my glasses didn't have to go through the three stages. Sometimes they do. <laughs> After stage B, I can come to Pesach. Because stage two is really integration. Where I start integrating the new metzias, the new consciousness, the new identity. It should be able to, I should realize that this is my ultimate calling. This is my ultimate destiny. There's a teenager who once told me that he's struggling with halacha. Because it has so many limits on a person's life. I daven in the morning and I daven in the afternoon. I daven in the evening. And there's Shabbos and there's Yom Tov. I said, listen, there's only two ways of looking at it. Imagine you come to a nutritionist. And the nutritionist tells you, this you can eat. And this is really toxic for your body. And you come out of the appointment. And you say, you know, this nutritionist is a dictator. He's a tyrant. (laughs) He's a cruel person. He's trying to limit my life. Or you could say... This nutritionist is trying to optimize my health, trying to make sure that I have more energy, trying to maximize my time, my mental space. 
So I should feel better. I should operate on the highest level of energy. The diet of Yiddishkeit, I told this teenager, it's a diet. It's here to allow you to operate on your maximum level of energy. To live your life to the fullest. To suck the marrow out of life. To suck the marrow out of every day. Knowing your blood type, your nutritionist tells you what works and what's really toxic. Well, God knows your blood type. In fact, He created your blood type and your brain. He knows your brain. He knows your soul, your mind, your body. So it's a system that allows you to be aligned with your chemistry, physical chemistry and spiritual chemistry. This is self-actualization. This is self-expression. If one sees it as a system to, to crush, to stifle, to keep everybody humble in the negative sense, you're just a shmata, you have to be controlled, then we really lost the plot and it's not Zman Cheruseinu. Zman Cheruseinu means trying to become my best and happiest self. Then we can come to Pesach. Pesach is after the festival of Matzos, after the season of our emancipations, Man I now come to Pesach, which we translate in English usually as Passover. <laughs> Passover because God, Hashem, passed over or He leaped over or He jumped over the homes. Rabbi Moshe Leib Sassover once said, what's this idea of Hashem jumping over the Jewish homes? So he says that when Hashem came to a Jewish home, he started to dance and jump. You know, when you, when you dance, you start jumping. He says, The Ebrus Tatonge Ibn Tansen, Ungezok, Da Vointayid, Da Vointayid. Here lives a Jew, here lives a Jew. He's jumping over the house. When he comes to that house, he starts dancing and jumping. Da Vointayid, here a Jew lives. That's the idea of Pesach. The full celebration of the intimacy, the full celebration of the kinship. As Jews leave Egypt and ultimately they come to Harsina, they receive Torah. They internalize these truths. They internalize this life in such a profound way that a new people is born and a new person is born. A person who leaps over, always leaps over a life of constraints, a life of finiteness, a life of a limited existence into a relationship, a life which is defined by a relationship with that which is undefined. A life that's defined by a relationship with ultimate infinity, with ultimate truth. And that's exactly what leaping over means. What am I leaping over? A person walks. When a person jumps over, I'm jumping over anything that, you say, jump over the fence, jump over the obstacle, jump over the challenge. Leap over this place. Jump over it. What does this mean? After stage one and after stage two, the person can leap over everything that limits them, everything that turns me into a finite container because I allow myself to become a channel for infinity, a channel that's open on both sides. So it's not limited anymore, not by seven ounces, not even by a hundred ounces, not even by a million ounces. As the person becomes one with the source, when you identify yourself, your very self, as a channel for Hashem in this world, then the very I transcends finiteness. The very I becomes a channel for Hashem's infinity. So as I embark on my journey from exile to freedom, from slavery to emancipation, and I go through these phases, the person then reaches Pesach, 
where the experience of the new consciousness is so internalized, like 40 years after the teacher becomes, after the student becomes one with the teacher, that a person starts living a life that's completely one with Hashem. Every moment I experience that relationship with Hashem. Every moment is a life in which I live with Hashem. A small, finite, flimsy self is transformed into a channel for absolute infinity. Or as Hashem says, we say in Tehillim, Ani amarti Eloikim atem uvnei elyoin kulchem. Ani amarti, I have said, I have planned, Eloikim atem, to see you as Eloikim, which obviously means to see you as channels for Hashem, to see you as one, ubnei elyoin, children of elyoin, of the supernal one. And yet sometimes people degrade themselves, <laughs> believing that they're just destined to despair and resignation and decline, not really allowing themselves to ever fully integrate what true freedom is from Chag HaMatzos to Zman Cheirusenu and ultimately to Chag HaPesach. Have a wonderful week. A good nyamtif, a kosher, and a freilich in Pesach, a kosher and a freilich in Chag Hamatzas, Zman Cheriseinu, and Chag Pesach. Thank you. I want to thank Reb Shmuel. Oh, here you are. I wanted to give you a special thank you for coming today. And I wanted to dedicate the class to your grandmother, whose funeral was just today, Chana Elka Bas Rebin Yamin. Tehei Nishmasa Tzura B'Tzur HaChayim. And may she remain an eternal source of inspiration and blessing for you and the entire Mishpach and all of Klal Yisrael. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.